Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Three Peas in a Pod. I'm Paul Jarvis, editor of Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin, and I'm joined by my deputy, Jonathan Davis. Hi, Paul. In this episode, we'll be taking a look back on another great awards evening in London and reflecting on some of the positives of PPP. We'll also discuss the highlights from our recent handback event hosted by Adelshaw Goddard. While regular Snoop Hackett P. Dealsworth will be joining us later for his unique take on what's happening in the market. So, let's start with the Partnerships Awards, held in the Park Plaza, Westminster Bridge, on the 4th of May. It's always a great night, and this one was no exception. We both left, Jonathan, just before three, I think it was. But there were plenty of people still in the bar at that point. So, if anyone listening wants to get in touch to let us know who won the dubious prize of last man or woman standing, do get in touch. But seriously, on the awards themselves, as we said in our news story the following day, Australia did very well. Plenary won Sponsor Developer of the Year, in part for its work on the Sydney Metro, Western Sydney Airport Stations, Systems, Trains, Operations and Maintenance, or SSTOM for short, project, which itself won the Best Transport category. And Sydney Metro won the Procurer of the Year Award. And I think this really shows the fact that the model is still very much flourishing in Australia and that there's sort of plenty more to come. Having said that, it was also a good night for Versity in the UK, which won the SPV Management Company of the Year and ESG Project of the Year for its Recirculate initiative in collaboration with Infrared and Buig. Plus, Versity received a highly commended in the Best Operational Defence category for Northwood Headquarters. So while there's a lot of talk obviously around the fact that PPPs around the world are taking over from the UK, and I definitely alluded to that in my opening speech on the night. The results show, I think, that there's still definitely plenty of good practice and good work still happening in the UK. And I think, you know, particularly obviously on those operational projects where the experience and expertise is, is still coming through and, and there's plenty of opportunity obviously there, perhaps more so than in new projects, to show the good work that the private sector is doing and delivering. So that, I think, was quite encouraging. What were your highlights, Jonathan? Yeah, I think it's the mixture, really, which to me was the big takeaway. Like you said, in the UK and in Ireland, there's some really interesting projects. We saw Ireland Nursing Project take home a win, Welsh schools take home a win, the UK's Air Tanker Project, which is for refueling the military, also won. So it's good to see some you know, innovation and some success stories here. But really, it was the new entrance, which I thought was the striking. We saw projects in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates take home some of the really big prizes, which are just emblematic of the center of gravity shifting that is happening in the industry. Although, as you said, there is some good stuff happening here too. Plenary won the awards for the UAE bundle, which shows that it is also the old guard in the new places as well. But really, it kind of signifies what could be coming next. And especially with projects like Saudi Arabia's Neom promising to use PPPs on a scale that we've never seen before. I'm wondering if next year or in a couple of years time, it could be a complete clean sweep of the awards for projects like that. Yes, I think there's definitely that potential, isn't there? And I think, you know, we focus a lot, don't we? And the industry, I think, really, to be honest, focuses a lot on the what's new and what's different and the new projects and where are the new projects. And that makes sense. That's where the forward momentum is. That's where the growth is for any companies. And clearly the Middle East is at the forefront of that at the moment. And as we've said on this podcast before, Saudi Arabia, 200 projects that it's announced in its kind of pipeline. 
for the coming years. There's a lot there to go at. But at the same time, the UK and Ireland, as you mentioned, you know, still ticking over with projects, but also showing what they can do on existing projects. Yeah, but it's not always reinventing the wheel in the new territories. There's also, like you say, bundles of schools that are being done. So it's very much using a tried and tested formula with experienced people who have done them before in different jurisdictions. So it just goes to show that the model is proliferating and is applicable to different geographies. And it's an example for other jurisdictions as well. We saw a win in Uzbekistan, who for some people would be not even on their view, but more and more so is becoming a quite significant player, particularly in emerging markets, and is doing a lot of work to put themselves on the map of ordinary players in the UK and the other hotspots. So it really does show that one success here can then become a success somewhere else, and that feedback loop can be a positive one. Yes, absolutely. And like you say, you know, it's, there's a lot of the same people, same companies appearing on projects. You mentioned Plenary a couple of times already, and a recent project in the Middle East actually has just seen a, a shortlist come out. It's the Khalifa University, where you've got various international players, including Plenary, but also Bezics, who are very well-known and experienced in Europe, and Aberdeen as well, which is, again, another kind of experienced PvP player. So in that sense, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of the old. But I think, you know, from the point of view of those new territories, that's obviously really important for them because from the point of view of the country being able to attract those experienced players to the market sort of says a lot about the potential of those markets. But it also shows that those countries are in a good place. Yeah, definitely. But there's also innovation here at home. One of the main individual awards of the night, I had the pleasure of awarding to Julia Pike at Sizewell C for her contribution in utilising the RAB model on what is the foremost energy project in the UK and a key part of the UK's plan for a green future. So there is lots and lots happening all over the world. But in terms of really big projects, there's still important things happening in the UK too, obviously DPC and models like that. So it was an awards which had lots of different segments to it, but it was actually an optimistic one. It wasn't just, oh, this is some great operational projects, but there's nothing new coming online. There's lots coming online and it's coming online in, in lots of different places in different forms. Yes, absolutely. And I think actually perhaps tying all that up and taking us on to the next thing we want to talk about quite conveniently there is, you know, you talked earlier about schools projects in in some of these countries being very similar to the sort of thing that we may have seen in the UK in particular 10 or more years ago under building schools for the future. And in fact, I was talking recently to one person who made that very point that particularly the Abu Dhabi schools project has a lot in common with a standard UK PFI schools project. Which is, again, not surprising. A lot of the advisors who work in those areas have experience and had experience in in the UK market in the past. And I think it's quite apt that you talk about uh, the optimism in that area because I've actually just finished writing a feature, which has just been published on the website recently, that's looking at just this issue of positivity in the PPP industry. I think, you know, there's a lot of negativity, as we all know, that usually comes with the acronym PFI in particular. But as we've just been discussing, really, I think, you know, what it fails to acknowledge is that there's a lot of good being done as well. And over the years in the industry, again, we've talked about this in the past, we've talked about the lack of kind of 
good communication. And I think that's often been the problem that the industry itself has often failed to sort of point out some of the benefits that are being provided through the work that they're doing to the public sector and things that simply wouldn't be happening without that private sector input and whether that's setting aside some space for a local charity or local organization, a community organization to deliver its services within the larger public authority building, whether that's partnering with a local sports team, which is something that often happens to kind of drive a a wellness message. And I think particularly around healthcare, that's quite a, a strong angle. If you're increasing and encouraging the local community to have a more healthy and active lifestyle, you're probably going to find that actually the number of people coming through the doors is reduced to a a more manageable level, potentially. Mm. You know, we've seen some really wonderful examples, I think, of this since I've been looking into this as an article and I would encourage people to read that piece and also come to us and and give us their examples as well, because I think this is the sort of thing that we need to see happening more and more in the industry and being publicized, really. Yeah, absolutely. I I was speaking to a number of people in the US about this kind of issue and how to communicate what a p3 is and some people focus on p3s and ppps as a delivery mechanism other people focus on it as a life cycle issue i think generally the perception of people in the general public is on that delivery side but it really does impact the view of the whole model as a whole because operation and maintenance is one of the key elements and differentiating factors of why you use the model but once you're toll road is built nobody using it really knows that they're on a p3 after you know the banners are taken down of the construction masters going along but as someone was telling me a while ago about projects in emerging markets your users are the best ambassadors for your projects and so if people were aware and could see the conditions of their assets how well they responded during covid perhaps and the other success stories, it'd be much easier for authorities to realize, oh, wait a minute, we've got a multifaceted opportunity here that's not just about trying to fill a financing gap, but actually can deliver long-term quality assets and key elements of communities to a really, really high standard. And in the UK, the conversation is in lots of different stages, but with handback coming up, which is a really big focus, there's also an opportunity to hopefully try and reset the narrative in terms of when we retrospectively look at a project that's come to its end, has it delivered value for money? What kind of condition are the assets in at the end? And are people happy with how they've had their facilities being run over the 25 years? And the early kind of indication is that these facilities are in fantastic condition and and have delivered what people wanted at value for money which is something that really does need to be said a little bit more frequently or positively yes definitely and i think we see a lot of the negative side don't we in terms of handback and questions around whether things are going to be fit for purpose whether they're going to be ready for handback all this kind of stuff but in most cases the small number of projects that are sort of not in the state that they should be and the vast majority are well run well maintained and as you say, you know, from a user point of view, how many people walk into a hospital and sort of look around and think, oh, this is a, a PFI hospital. Isn't it beautiful 
awful, whatever whatever point of view you have. Most people go to a hospital and just want to be provided with the services that they turned up to the hospital to, to receive. So on the one hand, maybe that's why we don't see so much of that publicity. But, mm. you know, on the other hand, I think doing those kind of surveys and making people aware that this hospital is actually being run in a particular way that is of benefit to the community is probably something that needs to happen a bit more. And just, you know, in other areas, just recently, so, you know, you do talk about the, the value for money proposition and, you know, whether you're getting value out of the, the building or whatever structure it is, whatever the asset is, over the 30-year the lifespan. I think the other side of that is that there's often more to it than that. So just recently, UPP in the UK, which is focused on university accommodation, it published its first annual sustainability report, and it promised to create £6 million of social value through you know, a variety of things, volunteering schemes, supporting vulnerable people into employment at UPP, charitable fundraising, all that sort of stuff. And that's obviously of huge value to the local community, but it's probably something that in a final analysis probably wouldn't be taken into account necessarily in terms of you're looking back at that student accommodation block and what has it provided? Oh, it's provided some housing for students. Well, actually, it's provided the opportunity to deliver a whole lot of other things and I think that's what a lot of people forget and so yeah I think there's a lot more that probably could and should be done to promote that kind of side of the business and and what they're providing to communities. Yeah absolutely I mean regular listeners would have heard our interview with Graham Alba from Luton Rising who's head of Luton Airport and he really talks about how they're using partnerships and PPPs to really drive that social benefit which can be intangible in some ways or quite hard to define but in terms of the relationship that his authority has with its surrounding and the impact that it's able to have it's quite astounding it's really quite pioneering in the way that it's leveraging the private sector to be able to maximize that impact so I think there's a lot of lessons in there for asset managers and people who are considering that on how to maximize this and then later how to sell it because we're hearing about what he's doing up there. I think he's actually just retired, but it is a real shining example. And there are other airports that are following in their kind of wake. So the successes breed successes. But like you said, we do have to tell this story a bit better. Maybe that's partly on us as well, Paul. Yes, absolutely. And well, as I mentioned, yeah, I sort of produced an article you know, just a week or so ago on this very issue. And I think what I, I guess would say now is is just for listeners, you know, wherever they are in the world, if they have examples of good positive work, get in touch and, and we can, you know, see what we can do together. Now, just a week after the awards, Jonathan and I attended a rather different event focused on the handback and expiry of PFI contracts in the UK. It was hosted by Adelshaw Goddard with input from Versity, PwC and ourselves and covered a whole range of issues actually, focused on four key areas, them being asset transition, net zero, services post-expiry and liabilities. So I think it was a really interesting deep dive into some of the topics around handback and expiry and actually touches I think on some of the stuff we were just talking about really around Mm -hmm showing the positives and, and, you know, how they can impact what comes next. I think probably for me, I'd say the first key takeaway I talked about was that there was a lot of conversation around 
the it depends phrase. There were various questions as part of the conversation. It was a much more interactive event than just a sort of standalone conference. And I think the outcomes from that was that a lot of people recognized that there would be different perspectives on you know, a variety of questions. So it depends on where you're coming from and where you're going to as well, to a certain extent, in terms of what the authority is looking to do with this asset post-expiry. So I think that's probably one of my key takeaways. Jonathan? Yeah, just to kind of second that, I think there is lots of perspectives, and there were lots of perspectives in that room, but there was an atmosphere of, it is possible to define different people's ideas of success into a aligned, cohesive, you know, target for everybody to start moving towards at the same time. And I thought there was one great legal tip by one of the team at Adelshul Goddard who said about circulating between all the different parties just right at the beginning of handback a kind of memorandum where it can in containing everybody's views of what their kind of primary goals were through the handback process and then once everyone is aware of that it's much easier to partner with people and come from a position of understanding and accommodating and working together and I thought that was quite an interesting point that alignment point which we often hear at the start of projects is also super relevant as they deviate but ultimately the most common thing people were saying is that it's about putting the public first and having service continuation is right at the start and I think both sides are absolutely on board with that and there's other opportunities later in terms of net zero and what happens to the assets kind of post expiry that one of the main points for me was kind of redefining expiry as asset transition or just transition to the next stage of its life and what it can contribute to the community. And once you take that view, it takes the heat out of it a little bit. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting. I think, and again, it was mentioned at the event, but there's a sort of an odd tension there, isn't there, in that you need to have the people who are effectively in charge of these contracts at the top level engaged at a high level to keep that high level ambition of this is the asset and this is what we wanted to do post-expiry and you know if that's some sort of continuation of the relationship then we need to focus on that if it's an end and a change then we need to focus on how that happens and how that transitions but at the same time what struck me in various conversations was around the fact that actually when it comes down to it there's a lot of granularity that everyone needs to get their hands into the weeds in some ways. The Carillion experience was mentioned by quite a few people in terms of where they have experience of transitioning from one thing to another. And of course, with Carillion, you know, the fact that it disappeared almost overnight is a slightly different beast than you would hope a an orderly end of PFI contract would be. However, there were various issues that need to be resolved right down to where are the keys for the cupboards yeah you can't forget that even in an orderly transition you know all this kind of stuff has to be properly managed and maintained and yes you want that high level view but you you can't ignore the the bottom level if the people are going to be different on the day after expiry than they were previous to that yeah definitely it is that positive example of okay the industry can respond and can ensure the service continuation and for there to be a good outcome afterwards where everybody is relatively happy. Same with in COVID-19, the amount of flexibility that had to be shown in the system was very, very obvious and actually got a lot of praise. And 
their PFI assets or PPP assets responded really well, generally, to that kind of shock to the system. But this is different, I think, because there's such a long run-up, people really want to make sure that they're preparing in the right way. And there was one really interesting comment on the table I was sat on where they were saying people are almost a little bit nervous about using their own initiative about how to approach handback because there's so many coming down the line. You don't want to set the wrong precedent. There's a little bit of not crowd mentality, but inertia in terms of wanting to charge in and do it differently. But that will come as it comes closer. And as more and more go through handback, there'll be more experience and more stories to share and more successes. I think it was quite optimistic, actually. Yeah, that first mover nervousness is quite interesting. But, you know, as an industry, this is an industry where first movers have historically done well. So perhaps that will encourage people to get going on this. I think, again, back to your point on COVID-19 and, and the impact of that and kind of linking that up with the experience of Carillion. One thing, again, that sort of came out as those discussions were happening was on my table. So people were obviously positive about that, but I think did underline that it was a common goal that had a very sharp edge to it, if you like, in both Carillion's case and and COVID-19. So I think that there's a fear that perhaps there isn't that same feeling around handback and expiry when you're trying to communicate that with your partner when sharp point, the end of the contract, may be still five, seven, ten years away. Obviously, that has the advantage of giving you plenty of time to, to get things in order. But I think the concern is that at the moment, that's not creating the crisis the, and urgency that people um, had when Carillion left the scene. So I think as well, the other thing to consider here, or that you know, lots of people did consider and came out of the discussions, was the role of people and how important people are in this. And I think that runs through a whole different range of things. So people in terms of the relationships at the high level, again, between you know your provider and the organization, the public sector organization, and the equity providers, and possibly even the debt providers. All those relationships need to be good, need to be handled properly. And so again, that comes down to people. But then also at the very ground level, the people are hugely important. Mm. The ones who are on the ground who are actually providing the maintenance, who know where the keys to the cupboards are. And another outcome from the discussion was the importance of collective knowledge and yeah. being able to transfer the the experience and skills of 25 or 30 years of looking after this asset from the contract as it was to whatever comes next. And that comes down to that body of knowledge is really, you can write it down, but really it's about people hmm. and you know, knowing that the people who are there have the skills, have the expertise to deliver that day-to-day -day running of the asset. And I think you know how that is considered in handback will be hugely important, much more so really to the users of that facility than the more technical questions around the asset condition, if you like, and who should pay for renewal of X, Y, and Z. Should we have a gas boiler? Should we have a different boiler? All those kind of questions. You know, if you're a, again, to go back to the hospital point, if you're a patient walking into a hospital, you care much more that the lights are on, that the 
people can get you from A to B and that mm. when you get there, it's a clean and safe facility, probably less so than whether the walls are painted properly and have been recently repainted and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And that body of knowledge as well for the public sector is a major opportunity to utilize in your say net zero ambitions and what you want to happen next to the project. Because like you say, you've got 25 years of experience and data around the asset held within the private sector who are also deep in the industry and are innovators in many cases and are doing things on other projects where perhaps on the PFIs it's not particularly in the contract to evolve it into the next phase, maybe the whether that's right or wrong. But there's the opportunity there to use that knowledge and maybe make variations or do something to utilize this knowledge base to enact some changes, make variations, build projects, and make the PFI fit into the long-term view of the authority. And that opportunity, I think, would be a real shame to be missed if you get an asset and lose that knowledge and then have to start from scratch. It's just delaying the inevitable. And it's an opportunity for the private sector then also to facilitate that at the same time, because there could be some really interesting work where you can showcase your like innovations and also your ability to be part of a net zero transition that could be a space where the two sectors really combine and see eye to eye and are able to chart a new path forward for these assets. Definitely. And to that point of the private sector being able to demonstrate its its abilities, I think people often look at handback in the UK at PFI handback and sort of suggest, well, you know, there's no new PFI projects coming down the line. So does that mean the private sector aren't going to be motivated to show their best effectively because they're not not worried about what comes next to a certain extent, which may be the case. However, one of the things that was discussed last week was around the potential for those skills, that expertise, to actually be transferred across to maybe an estate view. So mm. again, to go back to the hospital, as it's clearly on my mind, <laughs> if you've got a hospital that's part of a wider health estate and the PFI provider has been running that really well for the last 25 years, the trust is happy with it, they see the benefit of that maintenance and that relationship then there is potentially that opportunity to say well okay the pfi is coming to an end but maybe we need to look at a wider estate management and obviously it won't be a pfi design build finance 30-year contract whatever but there is an opportunity to say well we can look at how we configure our estate and we can use the expertise that we have seen being provided on that that one building and we can look at how we could maybe configure reconfigure the wider estate yeah i think one other thing probably to pick out from the sessions and actually it came from a, a conversation during one of the intervals is around the importance of the directors of the spv companies going to play in this transition i think well we had one session which was on the liabilities that those spv companies and their directors will face and i think the point that was put to me was around that potential tension that we may see playing out in that you have directors of these project companies, the SPVs, whose legal obligation is to those organizations, those mm-hmm. SPVs, as they come to an end. And therefore, they're required to act in the best interest of that organization. However, there is a tension that in some situations, you could see a position where 
acting in the best interest of that SPV may not necessarily be what yeah. the director's ultimate employers, for example, you know, an, an equity provider who's part of that SPV, would maybe not consider to be their best interests. So there's going to be some tension around that, I think, and that's going to create areas of friction. But I think it does require people to act with that hat of being a project company director and recognizing mm. that role as a, a distinct role to just a kind of an adjunct of their day-to-day job, potentially. Just on that, Paul, do these SPVs not have the same kind of governance or structures as the larger company that might be the shareholder in them? So they will have their own set of governance, which therefore requires the director to be acting in the best interest of that organization. And obviously you, you can see a situation perhaps where the best interests of the SPV mm-hmm. may be in conflict, I guess, perhaps with the best interest of equity who maybe want to get or reduce the amount of money they're putting into this thing as it comes towards its end of life. So yeah, there's obviously the potential for differences there. One to watch. Definitely. Well, there's certainly plenty more to come on handback generally, I mean, both from us and we've published, as I say, this write-up of the event, but also from government, which is due to be publishing some more guidance and, and various other bits and pieces over the coming months. So do keep an eye out for that. Well, it's time to catch up again with our resident Snoop Hackett P. Dealsworth to see what he's dredged up from the rear end of the PvP world. So has anything caught your BDI in recent weeks, Hackett? Hello, Paul. I stumbled across a few interesting bits and pieces recently. Early PFI expiries, chainsaw massacres, and singing hymns are topics I'd like to briefly delve into today, if that all sounds agreeable to you. Yeah, all of those sound like good, wholesome subject matters for us to take a closer look at. Uh, What have you been hearing lately about PFI expiries, then? Well, are you a fan of the popular and often controversial adult-themed cartoon, South Park? Not sure I'd qualify as a fan, but let's just say I'm familiar with the show. Fair enough. So, I think it's fair to say that PFI expiry is the number one issue occupying the minds of those at the coalface of the industry in the UK right now, particularly when it comes to some of the first PFI projects that were undertaken in the UK. Well, one source tells me that the prevailing attitude can be summarised by a catchphrase used by a certain Eric Cartman. Screw you guys, I'm going home. Yes, I suppose the uh, the lack of clarity and clear guidelines were always going to cause headaches with regard to some of the initial PFI deals, which was struck many moons ago, as we know, in different times to those in which we find ourselves today. Indeed, Paul. I mean, much has changed since the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, peaceful protests were actually tolerated back then, much the same way that the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Piers Morgan are tolerated these days. Nowadays, organising a protest is almost as complex as an aborted Virgin Orbit satellite launch. Mm, Sounds like you were at the coronation the other week. Probably best we leave that particular issue to others and stick to infrastructure. Fair point. Anyway, the mind boggles when it comes to the complexities involved in PFI contract expiry and handback. So perhaps we'll see the Cartman Clause become a more popular option in the future. Now, speaking of peaceful protests, I assume that as a proud Welshman, you would have no problem at all with your fellow countrymen and women expressing their opinion in the form of a hymn. I think that probably depends on the subject matter, Hackett. Although, having said that, I do like the idea of a Cartman clause being inserted. Well, the subject matter in this case is the proposed new cancer centre being developed in Cardiff. Oh, let me guess. The locals are so delighted to be getting a brand new world-class facility on their doorstep that they've been holding spontaneous worship at the proposed site. Yeah, not quite. So, a campaigner opposed to the plans actually broke into song at a council meeting. 
Cardiff Council's planning committee was discussing the already approved plans for the new Valindra Cancer Centre when local resident Tamsin Graves gave a speech, then proceeded to give a full rendition of The Lord is My Shepherd, which I can only assume she thought would carry more weight than a well-thought-out and logically constructed critique of the plans. That was a lovely rendition of an undoubtedly top-notch hymn, and I fully understand the worst propensity for a good sing-song, so I wondered if maybe we should introduce a bit of music into these podcasts. I'll be happy to start us off. I don't think that'll be necessary, Hackett. There's a time and a place for hymns, and this podcast, along with local planning meetings, is not one of them. Ah, well, worth a try. Quickly moving on, and did I hear you correctly at the start mentioning something about a chainsaw massacre? Ah, yes. I know that yourself and pretty much all of our listeners would be familiar with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Classic film. Indeed. But have you heard of the Sheffield Chainsaw Massacre? I can't say I have. Well, perhaps we should all spare a thought for the residents and tree-dwelling species of Sheffield, where the programme of cutting down trees under the city's highways PFI contract became somewhat controversial, to say the least. Ah, yes. This is the infamous dispute over the decision to allow PFI partner Amy to cut down thousands of trees across the city. I believe at one point a bishop was brought in to mediate. I wonder if he sang the Lord is my shepherd during the meetings. Unfortunately, I don't have any insight into that. However, with the review into what went wrong having recently been published by the council, what I can tell you is that there are plenty of lessons for future partnerships to learn from the debacle. We've recently published a comment article, as it happens, from Mark Williams of SIPFA, which contributed to the report. And I'd highly recommend all our listeners take a read of that to get an understanding of what went wrong and how such problems could be avoided in the future. Sounds like a plan, Paul. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks again to Jonathan and Hackett, and see you again soon. Thanks, Paul. Cheers, Paul.